Hi, we're Ellen Taylor, and we're here to join you on your journey from pregnancy to birth, postpartum, and beyond. Here on the podcast, you'll get interviews with birth and parenting professionals, birth stories, and educational episodes to get you feeling confident, supported, and empowered on your journey to and through parenting. Welcome to Birth Reimagined. Hi, I'm Elle Kennedy, a birth photographer and doula based in Orange County, California, and I use she, her pronouns. Hi, I'm Dr. Taylor Garcia, a doctor of chiropractic, also in Orange County, and I also use she, her pronouns. Today, we're talking to Kalila Green, and she's going to share her surrogacy story with us today. Kalila has spent most of her life working with babies and children. She started as a mother's helper at 11 years old. After having three children of her own, she decided to become a surrogate to help another family grow. So, Kalila, you have three children with your husband. How old are they? I do have three children. They are nine Almost seven. My middle one is his birthday's actually this week, and my youngest is four and a half. Oh, nice. My kids are six and four, so right in that same age range. Yeah. Kalila, can you tell us a little bit more about your journey into parenthood? My journey into parenthood begins, I feel like, as far back as I can remember. I have always wanted to be a mom, and um, when I met my husband, we were in our mid twenties and we first met actually long distance. So it was something where we had a lot of time to talk over the phone and really get to know each other. And some of the things that we talked about obviously were having kids and how many kids we wanted and all that kind of stuff. And it was really important to me that I found somebody who had the same family goals that I did. So when I met my husband, we really delved into that. And I had told him that It was also a passion of mine, and I wasn't sure how I knew this because I'd never been pregnant, that I wanted to carry a baby for somebody else. I had no idea if I was going to be a happy pregnant person. I had no idea if I was going to have an easy pregnancy and an easy labor. And I was really, really passionate about making sure that I could provide something for somebody else that maybe they couldn't do. That's really cool. Thank you. When we first got married, thank God it took us no time to get pregnant. And literally nine months, almost exactly to the day, um, we were married on August 29th. And my daughter's birthday is May 28th. And um, we had a beautiful baby girl. And since then, you know, getting to expand our family has just been, thankfully, very, very easy. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that you knew all the way back then that you wanted to become a surrogate and that that was part of your plan, like your your soul already knew like this is this is the path for me. So what what was that journey like to become a surrogate? Because I know it's it's not always an easy journey for people, not just for the families who are looking to find a surrogate, but also for the surrogate themselves, that that journey can be difficult or hard. So what was that journey like for you? The journey in and of itself was really quite remarkable. Uh, To add another layer to it, I'm actually an Orthodox Jewish woman. So there's a lot of different laws that I didn't think I had to consider going into the whole surrogacy idea with the notion that I do have a lot of Judaism laws that we, we follow and practice and things like that. So I did have to talk to a few rabbis to figure out exactly if the process was something that we could do and if it was something that would the child be considered mine or, or not, even though genetically, obviously it's not um, because Mm -hmm. it does go down to the Jewish law side of things. We had to work all those details out. And thankfully 
we got some great answers and some really interesting discussions that happened because of it. There is a rabbi that's up here who works at Cedar Sinai who's absolutely fantastic and has been studying the Judaism laws of IVF and of surrogacy and of adoption and all those sorts of things. So fortunately, I had a chance to really delve into some deep discussions with him. And then once we realized that this was certainly possible, and there's a lot of Jewish families that really are having trouble with creating their own families, it was something that was kind of a no-brainer where we said, okay, well, once we knew that we could be a surrogate, being a surrogate for a Jewish family was obviously the way to go. And, um, and that's actually part of the Jewish law, but finding that family was then the next step to say, okay, there's a lot of surrogacy agencies that have popped up over the last few years since surrogacy is becoming so much more prevalent and, and legal in certain states for a very long time. It was actually something that was not legal in many states in the U S and once we kind of got those things out of the way. Um, finding the right agency, which originally was based in New York, was something that we we went towards with a, a wholeheartedness of saying, okay, let's just find the right couple. And it did take a little while. Uh, there's a very long questionnaire that you have to fill out, and it really needs to go into detail about who you are, what your principles are, what your morals are. And it sounds kind of like an odd thing to think about when you're talking about pregnancy to go into the principles and morals of things, but because you really need to get to know the couple or the person, it's something that has to be very specific and has to be um, very detailed. Yeah, you need to make sure that your principles and morals align with the person that you're asking to carry your child from the genetic parents perspective but from your perspective you also want to make sure you're matched with a couple who you believe in their principles and morals because you're bringing this baby into the world for them exactly it would be interesting to kind of do a little bit of back research and see how those questionnaires were developed because if surrogacy was illegal for a long time it'd be interesting to again figure out how they got to that point um, you know, in the process. So that'd be very interesting, just kind of thing to back research. I kind of look into that at a later date, but okay, keep going. Um, I think it's actually really interesting to do the research on it. And one of the reasons why it's great that the laws are changing is the way that the laws were, were worded before was that essentially if let's say I was a surrogate in Pennsylvania, um, I think in Pennsylvania, it has been legal for a while and let's say I went into New York where it wasn't legal and I had the baby in New York, even though genetically it's not my baby, in Pennsylvania you file all of the paperwork while you're pregnant that your lawyer does before you actually have the baby to say that it's not yours, you're giving up any parental rights and it is actually the baby of the genetic parents or the intended parents is what they call them. Um, in New York, they would actually have to adopt their own child if the baby was born in New York because I crossed the river. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So thankfully, in California and uh, a few other states for a very long time, it's been something that that's not an issue. And so the parents that I did eventually meet lived across the country, and um, they knew that they were looking for a surrogate where it would be an easy transition and easy document and paperwork kind of thing. And also obviously somebody who matched, like I said before, with their morals and their principles and knowing that during pregnancy, it was somebody that they could be very well informed with and not feel uncomfortable and speaking to and 
all those things mm-hmm. that normally you talk to your partner about when you're pregnant. And then now you're talking to somebody who you might've just met a few weeks before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once we finally met and, and really clicked, this couple has become like family to us. I mean, they are just incredible. And we got through all of the paperwork and we got through all of the documents and the signings and all that kind of stuff going into the IVF transfer. It actually took two times. Um, I wasn't really sure how I was going to react because like I said before, all of my pregnancies were so easy and so I want to say normal for lack of a better word. Um, but they all started in a way that you would expect them to start and, and to go into an IVF process, it's very medical. It's very specific and it's very sterile and you have to do medication, you know, for at least a month beforehand. And it's building medication upon medication to trick your body into thinking it's pregnant and then being able to go into the office and get the IVF transfer and then to go home and be on bed rest, it was a very different process. And so everybody always asked me, isn't it going to be difficult to give the child up when, when it's time to give birth? And I kept saying, but this isn't my child to give up. It's not my child. And it really solidified that in knowing that it was such a different start of life for this child than it was for my own. Yeah, it sounds like the the emotional component from the beginning was very different. From the beginning, it was very much like I am being given this child to hold and take care of for nine months, and then it's going back to its parents. Exactly, exactly. It was one of those where I knew that the mom just couldn't carry a child. She had tried many times. It didn't work. And so this was my way of saying, I'm going to be able to grow your child and it's your child. I'm giving it back to you once it's developed and once it's here. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love, I've, I've actually talked about like, I, I have two kids of my own and I keep saying like, I feel like my body wants to be pregnant again. And mm-hmm. I've actually like very seriously been considering surrogacy as a very real option. That's amazing. Cause I just, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that another child is right for our family at this point, mm. but I think I am meant to be pregnant at least one more time, if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, you're talking to somebody who feels like they should be pregnant all the time, so that makes total <laughs> sense. It's so interesting you talking about the emo- emotional, I guess, detachment, for lack of a better word, because there's so little um, representation of surrogacy in media. Like, the only one I can think of, honestly, is Phoebe, Phoebe from Friends carrying her brother's chil- triplets. I can't think of any other representation of surrogacy besides that one. And she like does get attached to the triplets at the very end there, but then she does give them up. So you kind of talking about how there's already kind of this emotional disconnect with the, how it just all started. Um, it's very interesting like to actually, you know, to hear it firsthand. Yes. So friends is one of my all time favorite shows and that is my favorite episode. Um, and my favorite thing to do was exactly what Phoebe would say, where people would ask and, and say, oh my gosh, so your your kids are going to have another sibling. And I'd be like, oh, it's not mine. And I, I channeled <laughs> Phoebe every time. And every time my friends who knew me would laugh inside because they're like, wow, you really are Phoebe sometimes. It's just really ironic. 
Oh my god, that's fabulous. I yeah. love that. Oh, it's not mine. Like <laughs> And then and then it was even better when both my husband and I would be like, Oh yeah, this isn't ours. And people would look at us with the strangest looks like, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, and more oh, recently yeah, there it. has been one other show, Fuller House. I don't know if you you watch the updated Full House, but they did have uh, surrogacy on there where Kimmy carried a baby for Jodie Sweeten's character. Oh, I didn't watch Full House when I was a kid or when I was younger, so I, I haven't watched Fuller House, but maybe I will have to check it out to Yes, to and see it was actually very funny because my kids, now that they are old enough to watch it, my daughter will watch it, and she's like, that's not how surrogacy works. <laughs> <laughs> like, leave it to the nine-year-old. Oh, I love it. How did they handle it on Fuller House? Um, uh, Jody's character could not, it's Stephanie is her name. I couldn't think of her name before. Um, Stephanie could not get pregnant and they had brought it up very quickly in one of the first episodes of the reboot. And then in a later season, she ends up realizing that she really wants to have her own children. And she tries to interview a few different surrogates and can't find the right person. And then all of a sudden realizes that, Kimmy could be a surrogate and Kimmy says you know I would love to be a surrogate for you I've always felt like you were my sister anyway if you know if this is something I can do for you because I can get pregnant then why not and they handled it in a very mature way in a very understanding way that was I think probably similar to anybody's expectation of surrogacy if you look at it from somebody who is a close friend but if you're looking at it from somebody who is trying to find a surrogate it's a very different reality yeah, I mean, yeah, it's I'm the the only other like I would say friends sort of kind of did surrogacy, but not really because uh, I other than Phoebe, um, Courtney Cox's character. Oh my gosh, I'm Monica, Monica, Monica and Chandler, but they ended up adopting right kids that she already had so that was more of like an adoption side of it but I I feel like maybe they tackled like the finding the right person aspect of it more so than definitely and I would say ironically the situation of finding the right person was much more of that Monica Chandler finding the right yeah. adoption partner um, because it was something where we we did a FaceTime interview first because we were across the country from each other and then they actually hung up the phone and they said to each other, which they then told me later, we have to meet her. We need to fly out to California tomorrow. And they, they pretty much did. They flew oh out, I think gosh. three days later and we met face to face. And first it was just myself meeting them with my lawyer. And we all fell in love with each other so fast that the next day my family ended up meeting her and her husband. Um, and they became like aunt and uncle almost overnight, which was really incredible. I'd never felt that connection with anybody so quickly, especially somebody who, you know, I, I, I just didn't even know where it was going to go from there. Oh, that's so wonderful. So it was really incredible how it was such a, like a lightning bolt moment where we all connected so quickly. You mentioned a couple times about having a lawyer. Did you already have a lawyer, like a family lawyer? Did the surrogacy system have a lawyer for you? How did that come into play besides just the paperwork? So I knew that you had to have a lawyer, um, I think from the surrogacy agency. The first time I had spoken to the surrogate agency, they had said and laid out all of the processes of you'll have a lawyer, but the couple will pay for it or the individual will pay for it. Um, so nothing comes out of your pocket as the surrogate, but 
you do have to have your own representation that does not then represent the intended parent or parents. Um, so this, this couple was actually the third couple that I had met and I had already, I guess, gone through the process a, a little bit with two other people and knew that my lawyer needed to be involved just in, in meetings and in understanding the legalese for the contracts and going over things with me and stuff like that. So what did your pregnancy look like after the, after the initial um, IVF? Like what was this pregnancy different than your other one? Like I'm, I'm kind of curious of like everybody says, you know, like, oh, like every pregnancy is different. Was it wildly different than your own pregnancy, your previous pregnancies? Or was it very similar? How did your body handle that? I'm sorry if, if this is an inappropriate question, like you're... you're <laughs> no, honestly, there are no inappropriate questions with the exception of one. And the only question I've ever had that I was like, mm, I don't think I'm going to answer that was how much I got paid. Oh, and I was yeah, like, no, that's, that's that. Yeah, everything else was really I'm an open book and I'll answer anything about the pregnancy and the labor and the birth and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the pregnancy in and of itself was very similar to my other three. The only difference was that for the first trimester, I had to still continue to be on the medications for the IVF okay. um, because they need to wean your body off of it. I don't know if either of you have ever had IVF or know anybody who does it, but because you can't just all of a sudden take away all of these drugs that have estrogen and progesterone and things like that, they need to wean you slowly off once they know that you're pregnant. So with the exception of typically you get pregnant, you go in to see your doctor to confirm the pregnancy, and then you come back maybe a month later, I was in the doctor's office every single week for the first trimester checking the baby, making sure the heart rate was good, making sure that everything was developing normally, and then um, slowly weaning off all of these different medications until I could go see my own doctor once the first trimester was over. And then once the first trimester finished, it was exactly like every other pregnancy with the exception of using the right language. So every time I would need to go in to see a new doctor, my doctor at that point obviously already knew. And every time I would see a nurse in his practice, I would say, it's not mine. It's, you know, the intended parents, here's their information. You should have it all on file. Or when I had to go in for the full scan at 20 weeks, it was, hold on, let me make sure that I can FaceTime the parents. And they looked at me like, what do you mean? Aren't you the parent? And so yeah. getting them on the phone and having the records sent directly to them instead of to me, I didn't need any of that stuff because I even after the baby's born, I don't need to keep that stuff. It's their records, not mine. Um, yeah. You only need to keep your personal medical records. You don't need to exactly. keep a handle of, of all of the medical records of the baby itself. Exactly. And so sharing all of that information was probably the only difference in terms of a pregnancy that I had kept for my own child versus a surrogate pregnancy. Everything else was very, very similar. That's really cool. All this talk of, uh, you know, it isn't mine. It makes me think of a meme of like, what's the dumbest thing someone has said about pregnancy? And it was, how, why does the father have to prove they're the parents? Why doesn't the mother <laughs> ever like, have to is... prove? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, with this the case, I mean, if anything were to happen, technically those parents, like, would both of them technically have to prove? Because what does it say on the actual birth certificate, though? Because, like, how does that work? So midway through the pregnancy, around in between 20 to 24 weeks, my lawyer contacts their lawyer and they sign over documents that we then have to sign and the intended parents have to sign that go to a courthouse here in LA for where the baby is being born that 
um, I relinquish any parental rights as does my husband to this child and that they are then taking over guardianship for the child. So on the birth certificate, it says their names. I'm not listed in any way, shape, or form. My husband's not listed in any way, shape, or form. I wasn't even listed. I think the only place that my name appeared was when the baby first came out. You know how they have that bassinet set up? They, I think they put my name, and then they put, you know, baby, boy, expected, whatever. Um, but once the baby was out and transitioned to being with the intended parents, my name was then taken completely off of anything that had to do with the baby. Oh, that's so interesting. I know I've heard, um, I believe it's in Canada, they allow space for up to four parents on a birth certificate. So that's how they handle um, situations like this. So your name would be on there as well as the intended parents' names would be on the birth certificate. Um, from what I understand. I'm actually really quite okay with the fact that my name is not on the birth certificate, especially given how open I am with the couple that um, this, I mean, I talked to her earlier on today and, and we're going to FaceTime later on this week because we haven't actually seen the baby in a really long time. We haven't seen them in a really long time. And obviously with lockdown, it's been a little bit different, but um, because we're very close, it doesn't bother me at all that my name is not on the birth certificate because I feel like even though the birth is such obviously an important part of bringing this life into the world, it's such a small part of the whole life. Yeah. That's something like I've realized like the birth is the birth itself is integral. Like it is important. It's intimate. It's, it is a transitional thing. It's a transformative experience, but in the life of the child, it's a blip. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, it's that first little bit, but then what happens afterward is, is that's what they're going to remember. That's what they're going to know. Right. Looking at this from the medical side of things. So there obviously is some sort of record of the surrogacy. So yes. even if your name's not, yeah. So, cause I'm like looking at the medical side, there are, some very unexpected things that can enter the human body at any time. And obviously, um, obviously, you know, in general people, we are, we are careful, but so say, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a good example of this, that something unexpected could have entered your body that would have affected the child that may not show up immediately. Um, I think maybe, Maybe a decent example would be um, my younger child was born with a congenital heart defect. And so after Teddy was born, they actually took DNA samples from both myself and Jeremy. Um, and they tested our genetic code to see if there was anything that looked like genetically it would have been caused. And they came up empty handed and they were like, welp this is just a weird thing. We don't know, like, we don't know if maybe your body was introduced to something at some critical phase and that's what caused the heart defect or if it was just total random happenstance and like the, when, when the arteries were splitting, branching off from each other, they just did it a little funky or something like that. So are you talking about something like that where it's, it's an environmental factor, not a genetic factor? Yeah, something like that because it would you definitely would have to have some sort of record, you know, of the surrogacy because then if something does pop up that is unexpected, 
the doctors wouldn't have to kind of go back through the surrogacy the whole nine the whole nine plus months to see maybe like they moved or something and the place they moved into had something in it that might have affected the child that would be a probably in worst case scenario kind of thing so this is something that on the medical side would uh exists so just sorry random thought that popped up there no that's okay i think they definitely obviously have all of the records of while i was pregnant so anything that i think they did whether it was through my own doctor or through the fertility doctor all got sent to them and anything that happened with my own doctor is now in my own medical records as well. So if something happens later on, they have access to all of those records, anything that is in relation to the baby. Obviously, they don't have any records of pap smears or, you know, breast exams or things like that. Um, but anything that's in relation to the baby, they would certainly have access to and, and probably already have records for. We did actually come up with an issue, I think at the 20 week scan they saw that the one of the kidneys was not functioning properly and they then had to keep me coming back in for the larger scans and the more detailed scans more than my other pregnancies ever had to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting because it was something where I, I thought, oh my gosh, is this you know something that was my fault? Is this something, did I do something wrong? Did I, did I eat something wrong? Did I, whatever it was. Um, and then they were thinking, oh my gosh, is this our fault? Is this our genetics? And it was something that we had to talk through with each other to say, look, this isn't either of our faults and thank God everything is fine. He, you know, when he was born, it was one little tube that they ended up having to just kind of make the hole larger for the tube from the kidney into the bladder. And I think everything is now solved. But um, going through the end of the pregnancy and kind of watching the kidney as it grew and making sure that it was or was not functioning the way that they were expecting was a little bit stress-inducing. And I, I had never had that with my own. So that part was definitely a little bit different and stressful and maybe a little bit more so than my own pregnancies where you worry about everything else that could go wrong. Um, here it was, oh my gosh, it's not only this life that I'm bringing into the world, but it's not even a life that I'm in charge of it. This is for somebody else. Oh my gosh. My heart goes out to you so much. Like I, I know exactly what you're talking about, about the late scans and, and just mm-hmm. having to, it, it is, it's a whole extra layer of what ifs like right. to cap off, you know, everything else. <laughs> and we also, to add to that, we had, there was one time it was, it was a Saturday. So it was our Sabbath where typically we don't use electronics and we're, um, praying to God in the morning. And then we have big lunches and things like that, which obviously with COVID we don't do as much, but it's still a very introspective day. And and we don't use electronics. We don't watch TV. We don't use our phones, things like that. So it was towards the end of the pregnancy. I think I was about 36 or 37 weeks. And you know how you're supposed to do those kick checks every few hours to make sure that everything's going Mm -hmm. well. And I had woken up in the middle of the night and I thought to myself, when I lay down normally, this baby moves a lot to get better, to get comfortable again. And he didn't really move. And that, that kind of worried me a little bit. So in the morning I woke up, I had breakfast and I kept thinking, he's not really moving. And I, I, I can feel him, but something's up and it's making me nervous. And I think if it was my own child, I would have just drank my orange juice and laid down on my side and did my count kicks and then said, I think I can wait till the end of the day. It seems fine. But because this was not my child, I was very aware of what was happening And I got to the synagogue, which thank God is across the street from my house, um, which is really, really nice. So I don't have to walk very far. And I remember 
talking to somebody who was a doctor and telling them what was going on. And they said, I'm giving you orange juice, go lay down. And I laid down and they came back to check on me. And I started crying hysterically. And I was like, I can feel the baby, but I don't know. It's not mine. I don't know what to do. And the doctor looked at me and said, if this was not on a Saturday, would you be going to the hospital or calling your doctor? And I said, yes, if it was not a Saturday and this, I was in the same exact situation, I would be definitely calling my doctor. He said, then I'm calling your doctor for you. So he called my doctor and my doctor said, go to the hospital and we'll do a stress test and make sure everything's okay. And I drove myself to the hospital. And it was a very odd situation because I, I didn't grow up being religious. So for myself and my husband who came into this later in life, I was very used to going out on a Saturday and going to the beach or going to the mall or whatever Mm -hmm. it was, but to have to drive to the hospital when I hadn't driven on a Saturday in probably 10 or 12 years was very strange. And getting to the hospital, I took my phone just in case there was an emergency that I had to call the parents or I had to call my own Mm -hmm. husband. But, um, I didn't want to call the family knowing that obviously they were also Jewish and, and worrying them if it was nothing and being in the hospital the whole time sitting there going, do I call them now? Okay. Do I call them now? The heart's beating fine. The doctor's saying everything's good. Is now a good time to call them or should I just wait until the end of the day? And I ended up deciding to wait till the end of the day once we found out that everything was fine. Mm -hmm. And when I told them at the end of the day, the mom was like, I am so glad you didn't call me. I would have sat there stressing the whole day and you handled it. And, and you, I couldn't imagine anybody who would grow this baby better than you. And I just started crying because after the stress of everything that had happened, I was like, Oh, thank God. Everything is fine. And I was just freaking out and the baby was just being quiet and that was it. And the parents didn't even have to stress about it. That's okay. I actually really love that that doctor asked you, like, if it wasn't a Saturday, what would you do? Yeah. I remember one of the best pieces of advice that I got is if somebody is is giving you a difficult choice and you don't know how to make a decision, you ask them, if you were in my situation, what would you do? Um, mm-hmm. Particularly if, um, like, if you're if you're in a situation where there is no clear-cut, you know, black and white answer, you know, what, what would you do when you're seeking advice yeah. from somebody else? And so I, I really like that he, that he asked you that and that that made it much more it it made it much easier for you to be like, of of course I would like, yes, this is what I would do, you know? Right. And it sounds like such a silly thing because people who aren't religious would say, just call the doctor. But when you're so used to that idea of everything shuts down, you know, picking up the phone is a big deal. And so you're right to have that person say to you, if this was not a Sabbath day, would you be picking up the phone and calling your doctor? And knowing that at that point I would, I was like, you're right. I, I'm on the phone to my doctor right now. Here's the number. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm not religious, but I was raised in a family that, you know, all of my extended family is Catholic and they're very religious and they take all of it very, very seriously. So I, I very much understand and respect that, you know, being Orthodox Jewish on Saturdays, you don't you don't use technology. We we used to live in an area where there were a lot of Orthodox Jews and so they again you you walk to the synagogue you right. don't you don't drive so you have to live within walking distance to go and um they actually had installed 
traffic lights where they don't even have so that they don't have to push the button to cross the light. So the light will just right. automatically turn for them so that they can cross the street without having to manually be using the technology to do these things and things like that. And I always thought it was really cool that that the city <sighs> planning knew that that was an area that had a lot of people who who, you know, have these this religious faith and that they took that into consideration when they were doing their city planning. And that is pretty amazing. That's, I don't know. Like, that's just one of like, I'm not religious, but I love when people take other people's faith and beliefs into consideration. Mm-hmm. And, and I do, I know that um, even within the religious communities, there are a lot of times there are exceptions that are made when you're pregnant, when you're nursing, when, you know, when you're in different states of health than the quote unquote norm and and that there are exceptions that are made because they know that you know under normal circumstances this is how you behave this is how you act these are the mandates but in this special circumstance like you can have an exception or you can you know be outside of that um I know there there's um you know religions that include fasting often at times have caveats that if you're pregnant, if you're nursing, you do not have to follow those and and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I, I, it's one of those things I like that they take individual people's needs into consideration. Yes. And that's actually something that we did end up having to talk a lot with the intended parents about because in Judaism, there are days where you are supposed to fast. Um, Typically it's 25 hours. It's not, you know, a few days, it's not morning to night. It's, a specific small, well, it doesn't seem small at the time, but small amount of time. Mm -hmm. And because of the fact that in my own pregnancies, I never fasted, I had to assure them that even though this wasn't my own pregnancy, for a day like Yom Kippur, which is the day in Judaism, that's like the huge day to fast and, and very much be introspective and be talking to God and ask for forgiveness from the people around you and asking the forgiveness from God himself or herself, um, or itself, that, it, it's, it was something that I had to discuss with them to say, you know, I'm not going to risk anything by fasting just because it's not my own pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I really, I just, it's the surrogacy birth is fascinating and adding the religious aspect on top of it is like just extra fascinating for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not personally a super religious person in any way so like all of this is just it just it makes it that much more beautiful to me if that makes sense Thank you. totally I mean if if you could say you know out of the whole experience what about it was different labor and birth by all means was the one that I could be like nothing like my own not absolutely nothing yeah yeah absolutely um, tell us more about that so I felt like with my first three it it was a very, you know, stereotypical, I felt contractions, they started getting stronger, I went into the hospital, it was a very natural process, everything went along, I guess, as it was supposed to, I had all three kids um, vaginally, and in the end, I knew I wanted a doula in the back of my mind, but could never afford one, and ended up getting an epidural for each of the three. And by the time I got to the surrogate pregnancy and, and 
labor and delivery, I said to my husband, I, I really want a doula. I know it's not in my contract and I know it's something that we're going to have to pay for by ourselves, but I really want a doula. And fortunately I had a friend who has been a doula for the past almost 18 years. Um, she, she teaches for Dona. She is absolutely incredible. And I asked her if she would be my doula and she was so honored and said yes. And I was honored that she was willing to do it, even though I was friends with her. And thank God for her because the whole lead up to actually having the baby, I was in pre-labor for, I think, two weeks. Oh, um, wow. Where, you know how when you go into labor, your oxytocin levels need to rise. And and normally it happens very naturally and you have to be in a comfortable area and, and it's very animalistic and very primal and all those sorts of things have to take place in order for those oxytocin levels to go up. Um, and because I knew that not only was my husband on watch for when I was going into labor, but my parents were on watch when I was going into labor and the intended parents were on watch when I was going into labor and their parents were all on. And I was like, that's a lot of people waiting for me to go into labor where I can't control any of this. Mm -hmm. And so on my due date, I went into my doctor and he said, baby's gotten a little big. If the baby has not decided that it's time to make an appearance, I think it was two days after my due date, he said, we're going to induce. And at that point, I was already dilated at least three centimeters. So it's not like starting an induction would have been from zero, but I was getting contractions and nothing was happening and they weren't progressing. And I would think I was in labor and every night for two weeks, I would be sitting on the couch counting and waiting, you know, checking my minutes and nothing would happen. And I'd fall asleep. And three hours later, I'd wake up thinking, well, I guess I'm not in labor. I got to text all these people and make sure that they know that I'm going to bed. Mm -hmm. And I'd wake up the next morning and it would start all over again. And so finally, on the day I went in for an induction, my doula said to let her know when they started the Pitocin drip. My best friend ended up taking me to the hospital and she stayed with me. So I had my best friend, both parents, the nurses, and then my doula all in the hospital room. And we were all joking around. We were having a great time. I think I checked in at around five o'clock that morning and they started Pitocin by about 5.30. And for the first hour or two, it was very easy and it was great. And the contractions were exactly like they had felt for the past two weeks. And I was doing great. And then my doula came in at around 6.15 or 6.30 and she explained, you know, for anybody who hadn't seen a labor without any medication, you know, things might get a little messy. There could be some vomiting. There could be a lot of liquids. There could be different things that go on. Um, and so just to give them a heads up, which was actually really great for me too, because I had never experienced a birth without medication. So it was good to hear those things as a reminder. Mm -hmm. And um, when the doctor came in at around 8.30 to check me, he said, things are looking great. I think at that point I was about five or six centimeters dilated. And he said to me, do you want to break the water? Because it will probably push you along pretty quickly. And it was one of those experiences where I looked at the parents and I said, it's up to you guys. And they were looking at me like, this is your body. And the doctor's looking at both of us saying, I just need an answer. <laughs> and so when, when we all sort of looked at each other, like, what do you want to do? The parents said, it's really up to you. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm down with it. If you want to break the water, 
let's get this process really in motion and, and get it going. And so they broke my water. And at that point, I think that's when I tuned everybody else out. And I knew that the intended dad had turned friends on, ironically enough, on the iPad because I knew that I needed that background noise and friends is the, my comforting show. So mm-hmm. that was on. My doula was talking to me in my ear and I had been moving back and forth from the bathroom to the bed. And then at the time where I was ready to push, it happened so fast. It went from breaking my water to being ready to push in two hours. And yeah, real quick. Turn at, yeah. I think at 1045, it was, it might've even been less than two hours at 1045. I remember being on all fours in the bed and saying to my doula, I have to push. And she said, okay, the nurse is going to come in and check you. And I was like, I don't care if she checks me or not. This baby's coming out. Yeah. And they are so not used to seeing a, a birth without medication that the nurse said, you can't push You're only nine and a half centimeters. And my doula whispered in my ear, just trust your body. You got this. You can do this. You know what you're doing. This is your fourth labor. Just do what your body is telling you to do. Mm -hmm. And they made me flip over onto my back, which I was so annoyed by. But again, it was to slow things down so the doctor could actually make it into the room. And when my doctor came into the room, I almost heard the sigh of relief from everybody that was there that he was there. And I remember opening my eyes to a wall of interns and nurses and my own doctor. And I thought, nope, don't want to see that. I'm just going to keep my eyes closed and concentrate on getting this baby out. And with, I think, two pushes, he came out. And I thought that they were going to give the baby directly to the parents. But everybody is sort of in that automatic motion where baby comes out, you put the baby on the person's belly that just gave birth. That's routine. And so when they put the baby on my belly, I looked down and I was like, oh, okay, there's, I, I now have a child. And the first thing that went through my head was this child looks nothing like any of mine. And the, the mom was crying. The dad wasn't in the room at that point. The mom was crying. My best friend was crying. And I was just in shock that they had put the baby on me. And so when they came in, I think they said, they then said, do you want the dad to come in to cut the cord? And the mom again looked at me and said, it's up to you. And I said, as long as I'm covered, by all means, he can come in. So they covered up, you know, where, where everything was finished for the moment. Um, and the dad came in and cut the cord and then he left again, but then they gave the baby to the mom and they did skin to skin. And it was a very weird feeling that I all of a sudden didn't have this baby. And I think that's probably the only time where I thought, did I, did I really just give birth and now I don't have a baby? But it wasn't, it wasn't a sad thought. It was just a, okay, this is just a different thing to process. Kind, kind of, of surreal. Thought. Exactly. Do you think if they hadn't put the baby on your tummy, you would probably would not have had this moment? Or do you think it was, might, might have been inevitable, inevitable either way? It probably would have been inevitable either way. And I think it was probably better that they did put the baby on me because it gave that solidifying feeling of he really isn't mine. He didn't look anything like my own kids. He didn't look like my husband. He didn't look like me. So I really got that first glimpse of genetically not being connected. And I think it actually helped solidify that as opposed to then having them go to a different area of the room and then thinking, wait, where did the baby go? What just happened? It felt like closure. Exactly. 
And each step that then happened after that was another sense of closure and another sense of, in a way it was a sense of loss, but in a, it was also a sense of beginning where when we got moved into our rooms, I actually had to hold the baby. They wouldn't let the mom carry the baby from the delivery room to the recovery room. And so I got to hold the baby to go in there. And then I obviously gave the baby over to her and the father, um, but they were in a separate room. So while we were in the hospital, even having them being in a separate room, it was that next step of closure to then start to be able to express milk and have the nurse give it to them or have them walk in and, and come take it from me or whatever it was. The next step of closure again was to then say, okay, we're leaving the hospital. I can't just walk to the next room and give you whatever milk I've expressed. We now have to worry about how are we going to get it to each other being in different locations. So each one of those little steps was a process and something that was hard to work through for the first 24 hours, but then got easier as time went on. Yeah. You distancing yourself physically from, you know, each step of the way. Right. That's, uh, it's so fascinating to me. Like just each step of it, it, it's just so fascinating. It's, it's things that, that if you've never been through the process, you wouldn't think about them not letting the intended mother carry the baby to the next room or the fact that they kept you in that you each had your own separate room your right. own separate recovery room like those are things that like it never would have occurred to me to think about beforehand and it's weird because I think in certain hospitals outside of California or even outside of LA they actually have enough room where the parents do get their full room to themselves with the baby. But because Cedars is a very busy hospital, they didn't actually have their own room. They had what was, I guess the playroom or where siblings would come and they could kind of play and hang out if they needed to, to have a break from the the recovery room. Mm -hmm. And so they took over that room, which made it even more entertaining because we all just kept hoping for the time that we were there that nobody really needed to use that room. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I would say the only other thing that it was a very interesting thing to work through was with my kids because I knew that this was obviously going to affect me, but I wasn't sure how it would affect them. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, when we first started talking about becoming surrogates, my daughter was probably six years old mm-hmm. and has always been more mature for her age. I don't know if that comes from being the oldest or just her personality, but she's very mature and, and understood the concept, but always had this one question and would ask it a little more frequently than I, I think I thought of at the time. But whenever the discussion would come up, she would always say, if there's more than one baby, do we get to keep one? <laughs> My husband and I would always have to say no. It doesn't matter how many babies are in there. Please don't let there be three. I really don't want to be Phoebe that much. Um, but if there's one, if there's two, we do not get to keep any of the babies. And so when the baby was born, it was a very sweet transition for all of us that the parents let us have individualized time for each of my kids to be with them and the baby. So in the hospital, my daughter was able to hold him and feed him a bottle and be able to really bond with him as a cousin, as opposed to a brother. And then when we got home, they let me bring over my middle child, who I think was probably having the most trouble with understanding what was going on. Because on the one hand, he had seen a baby come home with my youngest Mm -hmm. and so knew what that process should look like, but couldn't quite wrap his head around the fact that 
he saw me pregnant, he saw and heard that I couldn't do certain things from when I wasn't pregnant and didn't quite understand why we didn't have a baby, but knew why we didn't have a baby. And so to have him see the baby with its parents and be able to hold him and things like that helped him so much, again, to solidify the fact that this baby was not ours. It's really more of a cousin. And my youngest didn't know either way. So for him, you know, he always, I think I'm sure he thinks, well, doesn't everybody's mom have a baby for somebody else? Like, isn't this normal? Yeah. So that your, your middle child needed that extra closure, but your younger one didn't know any better either way. Right. And he just, whenever we see them on FaceTime, he'll say hi to them. He loves them. He will run over and sometimes grab the phone from me and try to talk to them on his own. So to, to him, it's cousins and that's it. Oh, that's so sweet. I love, I love that you guys are still able to have a relationship with them. Not just you, but like your whole family. Yes, definitely. So do you have any tips or advice for people looking to navigate a surrogacy birth? I would say my best piece of advice for people who are looking to navigate it is to not be afraid to ask questions, to not be afraid to really delve deep within yourself, to really think about what you want. And, and this goes into the question of things like abortion. It goes into the question of things like if a baby has any sort of, um, Down syndrome or trisomy 18 or heart defects or anything of those sorts to really ask yourself those questions of what that means for you, what that means for the intended family, um, and vice versa, that if you're the intended family, what that means for you and what that means for the surrogate, and to really not be afraid of those answers. And they might be answers that you never thought you would think, um, and they might be answers that you've had solidified in your head from the time you were very young, but to not be afraid of really delving into the the meaty things in life. Oh, I like that. I think I think that's important to think about all those things even, you know, even if it's not a surrogacy birth, even if it's, you know, your own child, I think we need to stop being so scared to have those thoughts and to really think about what our morals and our and our beliefs truly are. And, right. and how realistically are we going to handle those things if and when they pop up? Because ultimately, we're going to have to deal with something at some point right. that's not going to be fun. But Right. And if, and if you just sort of think of it on the surface layer, then maybe you will never have to deal with it. Or maybe you will never have to think about those things further. But going into a surrogacy... You have to think about those things and there isn't a right or a wrong answer. And I'm not advocating for one way or the other, but if you're not true to who you are and really delve into that for yourself and with your partner, then it makes it that much more difficult to be honest with the intended parents or with the surrogate. Mm, I love that. Um, Before we go, we have a few questions we like to ask all of our guests on the show. So um, first is, what is your dream for the birth community? Hmm. My dream for the birth community is that people are empowered to see what their bodies can do. I love that. That's that's something we talk about so much on the show is empowerment and and getting the support so that you feel empowered to make the decisions Mm -hmm. that are right for you, whatever those decisions are. Definitely. 
And second, uh, what is one thing you will do for yourself this coming week? This coming week, I am actually writing and finishing a children's book. And I would like to get that finished by the end of this week. I started it about two weeks ago. Um, the story just all of a sudden came out of an experience that we had. And I wrote it down within 24 hours. And I did all of the artwork myself, which I never thought I could do. So it has absolutely nothing to do with birth. But um, still within the children aspect of my life. That is so and cool. Thank you. And so I'm hoping by the end of this week That's that it awesome. will be completed. Okay. Are you, if you intend to publish this, let us know once you get a publishing and we will link to it in your show notes since we've talked about oh, it. Oh, that would be episode. awesome. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, it's not going to be ready by the time your episode goes live, I'm sure. But if and when that does happen, let us know and we'll plug it and we'll put it on the show notes for this episode. So that people, would be awesome. if people come back and hear your episode later on, they'll be able to find that. Oh, okay. The other thing I do, since you're a parent, I always mention this, is that I have a group on Facebook and I have my own website. When lockdown started, we've always homeschooled our kids. So I know this doesn't have anything to do with, with birth, which is why I didn't bring it up sooner. But That's okay. I homeschool too. So nice. it's all good here. <laughs> Yay, a fellow homeschool yes, this mom. Birth Reimagined is actually, um, we plug it as we're about supporting you through pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond. And oh, that nice. includes the parenting aspect. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. So you okay, have well, a then group on Facebook. I that do. was going to be my next question was, where can we find you? <laughs> so I am definitely on Facebook. I have a group that's called Ours and Yours, but the initials are YRS, which is my daughter's initials, Our Online Village. And when lockdown started, I went to my family and said, we need to do something because we can't, we're, we have such a community and we need to be able to still reach out and see people and talk to people. And, and just because we're in our own home doesn't mean that we can't do that. So on May or on March, I guess it was what, 16th or 17th, whatever that a really first initial day of lockdown was in California, mm -hmm. we launched this website, ours and yours, our online village. And it has a daily idea for things that you can do with your kids to keep it fun to have a 20 minute activity activity or a an hour long activity or a five minute activity that just brings you together to remember that even though we've all been in this lockdown for God knows how long at this point that we're still trying to connect with each other. Oh my gosh, I love that. I'm definitely joining your Facebook group. Yay. And I will probably cross post some fun ideas that I like onto our Facebook group as well. Yeah, so definitely. Spread, spread the, the word. word. Share it. <laughs> um, and the website is very easy. It's ouronlinevillage.com. Perfect. Is there anywhere else we can find you? Instagram, anything like that that you want to share? I am on Instagram. I'm not as active as my husband says I should be, especially with trying to do all the things that I do with the online group and the book and also starting my own doula business. But I am on Instagram. I think it's my handle is ours and yours YRS. Perfect. Um, but I don't check it very often. That's okay. We will add all of those to the show notes. So anyone listening can find your Facebook group. They can find you on Instagram and your website. Thank you Perfect. so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your surrogacy story with us. Like, it's so cool. I love it. I love it so much. It's my pleasure. So for all of our listeners, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye guys. 
Thank you so much for joining us here on Birth Reimagined. If you'd like to join our Facebook community, you can find us there at Birth Reimagined Family. And if you'd like to join our email list, you can get the link to that on the show notes for this episode. Being a member of our email list gets you access to all our freebies and makes sure you're kept in the loop whenever a new episode drops or we have anything exciting to share. Thanks again and see you next time.